Online Success Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping college students with mental health issues set and achieve goals for themselves to get them where they want to be. I am your host, Derek Malenzak, and this is episode 40 of the podcast. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I am very excited to, to bring you today's episode. Uh, today's episode is entitled Interview with a Supported Education Expert. I don't know what else to call her. Uh, she is uh, my former supervisor and current mentor, Michelle Mullen of Rutgers University. I'm extremely excited to bring this interview to you today. It is quite a long time in the coming. Um, Michelle's been with me sort of every step of the way the last four years, so more or less. And um, she, you know, was kind of there when I conceived the idea of this podcast and uh, meant to have her on the show last semester and our our schedules just never synced up and it probably ended up for the best because I just feel like I'm in such a better place now with the podcast that I wanted to, you know, wait and save a a higher quality um, real experience and be able to give it to you, you know, with good production and editing and, and some of the things that I've been able to educate myself on in the last semester. So I hope that you guys enjoy the show today. So let's start off with a couple of uh, different tidbits. So we are in week 10, for those of you keeping track and counting at home. That's two thirds of the way done through the college semester, if you're on a similar schedule to Rutgers, which means we're two thirds done. Uh, You know, I had said in week five that I was going to, instead of breaking up the semester into, you know, first half the semester, second half chunks, to, to do it a little smaller this time and to kind of look at the semester in five week increments. So first five weeks, kind of a warm up just getting your feet wet, not too extreme in terms of the workload, usually in the first, you know, uh, trimester of the semester, if that makes sense. And then you, we just finished the second third of the semester and definitely most people's midterms were in, uh, this semester and then, uh, a bit more work, you know, the pace really picked up in the, in the second third, right? And now we're heading into the home stretch. This is the last five weeks of the course. This is where a lot of um, large-scale projects become due and final exams come up. And you got to pull your shit together if you have been slacking off. So hopefully you haven't been. Hopefully you've been kind of following along and working on your goal, whether that be school-related or otherwise. Uh, Hopefully you've taken some of the uh, tips and strategies that we've talked about this semester and last semester, worked them into your uh, your workflow, and I hope you're doing well. And if not, um, I hope you have a way, I hope you see a way out of it. And that sort of... uh, lead me into actually no i'm sorry it won't lead me into our question of the day Eh, let's do it we'll go a little different today so we'll go right into our question of the day from our college so this person um i actually don't really have an answer for them i just wanted to use this as a springboard to talk about something in the comments so this comes from spencer s 1994 And they title their post, I'm over college, not happy, I just want out. (laughs) So they write, I'm done with school, not graduated, just done. I just can't take the assignments anymore, and I really want to curl up and die unless I can stop attending. I've talked to my parents about this a thousand times, and it always ends up with me going back every semester feeling like shit. Does anyone else feel this way? 
So I'm sure there are people out there that feel this way. I have no doubts whatsoever. And I'm sure at some point in my days, I hated college too. I didn't hate it every day, and I actually have more fond memories of college than non-fond. But I don't even really want to, I don't really know what to tell this person. So I'm not going to really dwell on um, advice for them. They're not even really looking for advice. They ask just, does anyone feel this way? And so they're just looking to maybe commiserate and vent, and that's fine. You know, everybody copes in different ways. Some people like to really talk out their problems and, you know, complain and get that all out and vent their frustrations, and they need really good listeners, you know, in their support network to be able to kind of help them through that. And that's uh, great, and I, I hope that you have those listeners available to you in your lives. I, I don't really cope that way. You know, I'm really not a big complainer. Uh, so I tend to try and refocus the energy that I would be using on complaining into something productive to get me out of the thing that I'm complaining about. So really, what it, when, when I read into this, this post from Spencer, I think that this person has no other options. And that is a terrible feeling. To feel like you only have one option and it's not the thing you want to be doing. Um, And I think that that's what they were saying when they were talking about their parents about it. But I'm sure the parents want them to stay in school, would be my suspicion, and sort of, you know, guide them back there and aren't probably offering too much in the way of, well, you could do this instead. That sound really appealing, right? You could go out and get a job and live on your own or, you know, I don't know this person's situation. So I'm not going to speculate. But really... That would be the only advice I could give is, you know, I get that you need to commiserate sometimes and know that other people are out there that are in the same position that you are in. You know, that's part of the reason why I'm doing this podcast, right? Especially in light of the episode last week when I had Stacy on, and that was one of the main themes, right? Is like, you're not alone. There's other one people out there like you. Uh, I guess, I guess the difference is, you didn't need to find that out through, you know, complaining. You could have framed it in a different way. Like, you know, I'm not getting what I want out of college. What can I do to get get the experience that I want? You know, here's the way I'm feeling. And these are the things that particularly really uh, upset me about where I'm at right now. You know, that would, in my mind, just be a little bit more of a proactive way to approach this problem. So there's just some quick advice. And then the first person that um, the highest, you know, most upvoted post was to suggest to take a gap year and get a job. It's a win-win situation because there are only four outcomes and they're all better for you than your your current situation. Outcome one, you hate the gap year and want to go back to school. Outcome two, you hate the gap year and don't want to go back to school. Outcome three, you love the gap year and don't want to go back to school. Number four, you love the gap year and want to go back to school. And I guess they're right. You know, I don't know if you hate the gap year and don't want to go back to school, how much more better off you are, except for the fact that you know you don't want to be in school, but you don't really know in that case what you do want to do. So gap year is a really popular topic of discussion and one that I don't really feel that qualified to speak on, um, except for this advice, because I feel like most people listening are in college now, right? And when I think of a traditional gap year, I think of the gap between 
high school and college. And this seems to be gaining traction in society, this idea of like, you know what, if you don't know what you want to do right out of high school, then take a year off, um, do you for a while, right? Um, travel a little bit, maybe get a job, you know, live life being an adult and see what you like and see what you don't like. And then at the end of the year, a lot of times you may have some direction into where you would like to head. And I think practically speaking, this is actually a great idea. Um, and because for the majority of people, they don't know what the fuck they want to do right out of high school going into college. I mean, I know I didn't. I have talked about this story before, but I was I went into college to become a physician's assistant because my mom thought it would be a good career that I didn't need to spend, you know, 12 years in med school and can earn a decent salary. Like those were the reasons for me going to my undergrad. Like, really? <laughs> That's awful reasons. Um, had I known what I know now, I would not have gone straight to college. And I certainly won't be encouraged. That won't be the expectation for my son. Um, I will make it up to him to do, you know, to kind of have as many options at, at his disposal as possible. And more importantly, that all of those can be traded, treated equally. You know, college isn't like, well, if you want the prestige, you should really go to college. And I'm going to kind of um, stigmatize some of the other options to kind of push him in the direction that I want him to go. I just think that that's, I just think that's wrong, you know. So I kind of urge people that... Um, maybe are not in college yet, you know, that, that are not really sure what they want to do to kind of take that gap year. Everyone's different though. You know, some people have some money saved up and can afford to really experience life and not have to go straight into full-time work. But if that's not you, then, you know, you have to consider what it's going to be like because you have to support yourself in most cases straight out the gate there. So I think a gap year is good because, and I think you'll hear this trend in, in my interview today with Michelle, like it's f becoming less and less the norm that people go straight from college, straight from high school into college, do their bachelor's in four years, and then, you know, go straight into their job of their dreams, right? It, you know, I talked about this before. Um, it was something you were kind of sold on and maybe did not end up becoming what the reality was, right? Um, and we'll hear it today with, with my guest. And we heard it last week with Stacy. You know, that's not the norm anymore. Most people don't finish college in four years. Um, a lot of people do not start college right out of high school anymore. It's, it's effing expensive. So if you don't know what you want to do, you know, it doesn't make sense to spend that money right away. Um, and the, I think of the gap year for me, because I did do, you know, what I was supposed to do, quote unquote. I went to college straight out of high school and I got my degree and I got my full-time job. And I mean, I think at that point, a lot of students go straight into the master's or, you know, their terminal degree. And I knew that that wasn't for me yet because I didn't, I really didn't know. And so my gap year ended up being five years between 2000, 2005, where I worked for five years and figured out what the F I wanted to do and be. And that's when I discovered psychiatric rehabilitation. And that's what drove me back into uh, graduate school. So it took that time. It took me to discover something and be like, all right, this is what I want to do. So gap year, good thing. Um, if you are really feeling directionless in college right now, um, there's, there's no fault in quitting, you know, despite what everybody out there is going to tell you that you're a quitter, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's also just really effing good to know 
what you want and what you don't want. And why put your through, yourself through something that you, you, you just do not see it being a fit for you. And for more information, look back in my podcast to the one, I think it was the second or third one this semester, where I talk about sunk costs and the biases and theory behind that. Okay, let's get into our quick tip of the day. This was actually also from Reddit. Something that I saw and thought it was a good idea, so I thought I'd borrow it from him. Uh, This guy has a great workflow for studying that I wanted to share. So he was saying he's a teacher, and he teaches, um, I believe, microbiology. And so he lists out the steps that he recommends, I think, for his students. So step one, read the chapter once before class and take notes. Make sure to write down any questions you have as you go. Write down the answers as you find them in the text. So he says, start out, you know, before class, go to go to class prepared, right? Read the chapter ahead of time, you know, take some rough notes, come up with some questions. If you find the answers, write them down. Step two, in lecture, take additional notes and ask any remaining questions that were not covered in the book or lecture. You can ask your professor and or TAs before, during, or after lecture, during office hours, or via email. Do this early and often. Don't wait until the day of the exam to ask. Certainly agree with that one. Step three, make a bulletproof study guide from all of your notes. This is going to include flashcards, diagrams, sketches, flowcharts, etc. Use whatever actually helps you. You should make one for each chapter. So that's, I think, probably for some a little easier said than done. Right? It's like, oh, just make a kick-ass study guide. Um, there are plenty of resources online for this. Uh, I'll try and include one uh, with today's show notes to just kind of give people an idea of what this might look like. All right. And then step four, explain major concepts to somebody else to solidify info in your mind and reveal any gaps in your understanding. I think this is like the most important step. You could form or join a study group, explain concepts to a friend, or even send quick email explanation to your professor and or TA to make sure you're understanding the concept. That that last one I like. I've never heard that before. Um, I'd certainly be totally fine if somebody sent me, you know, an email like that every once in a while. But I definitely can. I recommend this to people all the time. Teach somebody the material you're trying to learn. Pretend you're the professor and teach it to somebody. Study group is best, right? Because then everybody benefits and everybody can kind of take turns. But if you only have your mom sitting at home there and she's watching Oprah and you're like, Mom, can you pause Oprah for a little bit so I could teach you some microbiology? She's your mom. You know, she's going to say, sure, son or daughter. And she'll humor you as you teach her what whatever microbiology things you want to teach her are. You're not benefiting mom. You're benefiting yourself because it really does kind of make the information really salient. Um, It's solidified in your mind, as this person says. And step five, go back to specific sections of the book and lectures for review only to clear up remaining questions because you're already done with all the hard work and now all that's left is to review. So really the studying happens as I always encourage it to happen throughout the the weeks leading up to the exam and not, you know, oh, it's three days before the test. I guess I should open up the book now, right? So I really like how it's succinctly broken down into these five steps. I like that it encompasses teaching somebody the material, using flashcards, you know, all the shit Derek loves, right? Anyway, hope you enjoyed that and got some value out of that as you get uh, closer to your probable major exams. So, all right. 
Now, let's get into the meat of today's show. Today, I am, as I said, very excited to bring you um, a professor at Rutgers uh, that hired me. She was the one that basically got me out of community mental health and into academia. And I'm very excited to bring her on the show. And so, welcome, Michelle, to the show. Hey, Derek. I'm happy to be here. Uh, So happy to finally get you on. This is a (laughs) long time coming. For those of you that don't know or follow the show. Um, Michelle is um, my, I guess my former supervisor now. Uh, We sort of made that transition, but still very much a mentor of mine uh, in the department that I work in. Um, So really happy to finally get you on the show, Michelle. I was hoping we could start with just kind of giving the audience a little bit about you. So if you could kind of tell me a little bit about how you got to Rutgers and what that wonky path was you took that sort of led you to researching college students with mental health issues, because I assume that when you were a kid, that wasn't what you uh, had on your plate. It's like, that's what I want to be when I grow up. (laughs) No, I remember sitting in um, my dentist chair in like fourth or fifth grade telling him I was going to be the president of the United States. And he was like, good for you, kid. (laughs) So no, uh, this isn't exactly what I thought I'd be doing. Um, So how I got to Rutgers, I guess, you know, my story is like somewhat boring and I guess a little bit interesting, but I had also like kind of like a bumpy path on my way to finding out what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be. And it entailed an awful long time in multiple schools and a lot of undergraduate work. I have no idea how my parents like persevered that, but I essentially graduated from college 10 years um, after I graduated from high school. So much longer. I was I was so innovative and ahead of my curve that um, while people were graduating still in four years back then, I was I was really <laughs> blazing a path. <laughs> yeah, because now most students graduate in six or seven years as a mm-hmm. majority of students. So I was ahead of my time. I'm sure my parents really enjoyed that. Yep. And after graduating um, from undergrad, I had a degree in psychology, you know, which is like terribly helpful and you get such great jobs with that. Beating so down I, the door. Beating down the door for me. Um, So I got a job um, at a dot-com in Boston when dot-coms were like the big thing. And I was essentially uh, like a well-trained hen could have done my job. Someone walked into the front of the building and I buzzed the buzzer to unlock the door so they could walk to the back of the building and I answered phones. So my um, college degree was really being um, really well utilized. Um, And so I got uh, laid off when the dot coms, like the bubble burst. I got laid off and I was on severance pay for like six weeks or six months. It was like a really long time. It was definitely six months. And um, that was a really hard time not doing anything. I thought it was going to be great because like, you know, everyone wants to have pay and not have to work, I thought. Mm-hmm. And after a couple of weeks, that got a little tired, you know, like all my friends were working and I didn't really have anything to do. And so I started running and that's like how much punishment I decided to, <laughs> to do to myself. I'm not a runner. My body's not designed to run, but I thought I have to do something to keep myself sane. So I started running. And then I got this job as a residential counselor and it was the worst job I've ever had. And I thought to myself, I can't be a part of this system. And this is not the kind of services that I thought that I would ever provide. It was not a very good um, fit for me. And they did not treat people very well. It was a residential 
um, for adults with psychiatric conditions. And I was complaining to um, the guy that lived downstairs to me. And he was like, oh, you know what? You should go talk to my buddy's dad. He like does something in psychology um, and he's at BU. You should go talk to him. And for some reason I did. And he turned out to be the chair of the Department of Psych Rehab or Rehab Counseling at BU. And he was like, okay, well, we start classes in a couple days. And so why don't you just go take your GREs? I don't care what they are. Just go and take them and you're in and I'll give you a full scholarship and it'll be fine. I was (laughs) like, really? This is what we're going to do? And he was like, yeah. And so school became then my like savior from working in these like awful jobs that did not align with like my philosophy or how I think people should be treated. So I went to BU for grad school and it was amazing. It was like life changing for me. The philosophy of psych rehab, like really like trying to think about, well, how is someone affected by their environment? Like how do you develop skills so that people can get over those things and they don't have to be like quote unquote disabled that never really fit very well for me. So I, they paid for me to go and be a student and have this amazing experience And my internship was um, at BU, they did it. So you did your um, practicum for the first year and your internship the second year. So you always were working in the field and trying to apply the things that you were learning, which was super cool. And I was placed in my second year at um, an agency that provided educational and employment supports to adults with mental health conditions. And that was it for me. I thought like, oh, this is amazing. And this is what I want to do. Like, I want to help college students kind of figure out how to be successful in college and how to bump along and how to find a job that makes the most sense for them. Because that is exactly where I was in my life. Like, I have no idea what the F I'm doing in school. (laughs) has always been my savior. And um, I have been able to do enough of it to kind of be successful enough so people were interested in me. And and figuring out how to do that was a very bumpy path. But once you figure out how to do it, then you can apply it to all these situations. So my mentor then and now, um, Pat Nemec, was like, oh, there's this job that's open in New Jersey. And I know you want to go home. I was from New York. I know you want to go home and this is like close enough and um, arguably New Jersey is not close enough to New York, but <laughs> it, was good, it was good enough and it was an amazing job. It was this job. Um, and so because she was very good friends and colleagues with the um, people in our department, it was much easier. Clearly, if I went to any other school and did not have those connections, I never would have gotten that job. But this just goes to show how important like school is for like social networks. And when you're when you are invested in what you do, people invest in you, too. So that's how I kind of like made it to Rutgers. And after getting there, I didn't know anything. And so then, you know, I kind of became like a victim of my ignorance. (laughs) So (laughs) that is my kind of wonky path to how I figured how I found myself here. So much to unpack there. (laughs) Um, So the first thing I feel like I should mention to the audience, which is an odd coincidence, is that Michelle and I met in New Jersey, um, but we actually went to the same high school on Long Island, um, which is kind of an odd thing and grew up in in the next town over from one another. So um, we share a lot of the the same, um, you know, I guess, perspective on growing up um, from, you know, Western Suffolk County, (laughs) South Shore can provide us. 
But anyway, I think the one thing that stuck out, you know, because I didn't know all that story. I didn't know you got a full ride to be you. That was yeah. one thing. Um, cool. was like, I've only ever known you as this, like, person that really knows what the fuck they want. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And it's, see, it's odd for me to think of you prior to kind of finding support education. Like, that seems like it was your why. And that mm-hmm. was, like, kind of what turned you around and kind of gave you that, you know, direction on the map to be like, all right, this is where I'm going to head now. And then you had the resources in place, too. You had a few couple of key supports in your life, like your mentor you mentioned, that were able to kind of help that help kind of see that through. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, the way that I have operated in my life is that I've let the universe kind of like bump me around, always knowing that things were going to turn out well. Right. So I think that that's like attitude or like a mindset, like, oh, I'll try this and this will be great. So it was like intentionally trying things or unintentionally getting myself into situations that I, that were helpful to me. And clearly you have choice points when you find yourself like in a job that you don't like or in a major that you don't like, you change them. And so I had 10 undergraduate majors. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, so for some people think like, oh, you need to pick a major and stick with it. No, you don't actually, you need to do, you have to explore and find yourself and like figure that out. So with that said, I've always had great supporters and have always been interested in what I've been doing. Like, I think that there are probably spaces in my life where I was so uninvested in myself and the things that I was pursuing that people didn't invest in me either, you know? Mm -hmm. But when I found myself at BU, it was such a fit that there was like, it was, it was me. It was like a non-option that I wouldn't, I was invested. This is what I wanted to do. I didn't know how or what specifically. Um, but I think when people talk about like good luck, everyone used to say, Oh, Michelle, you have such good luck. And I don't know how much of it is good luck, but it's that how prepared are you for your opportunities? And that was an opportunity that I was prepared for. And I was able to really, use it to my advantage. And so I have a lot of strong opinions. Um, and I have a very, I'm very vocal, <laughs> big mouth is what I was going to say. And That's I think okay. that both of, them, yes, both of those things are true. Yeah. I have a big mouth. I'm vocal. Um, and so as a student, I, the, what helped me is being able to talk through the things that I either agreed with, or I didn't agree with. I openly, um, I mean, me and my professors had a very good relationship, but like I challenged them and they challenged me because I thought it was like reciprocal, right? That's what you're in grad school for is to like become the best in what you're learning or what you're doing. Um, So I think that one of the things that you do when you're in school is that you build what we call like social capital and human capital, but social capital in that you really make these strong connections with people that have Um, the ability to change the way you think, the people that you interact with, the opportunities that you have. And I was very blindly, I had no idea when I entered into BU that it was in that program, the best program. Um, and like the founder of this approach to working with people, I had no idea. I like really came in (laughs) ignorant. Um, but it happened to be the best thing for me. So have them being able to develop these relationships, um, with both the teaching faculty as well as the faculty and staff at the Center for Psych Rehab, the research um, side of it, which is the only thing that's currently standing because there is no program anymore for psych rehab at BU, which is a disappointment. Yeah, but, definitely. Um, I think that that's what allowed me to kind of find where I was. And 
I don't actually know if I answered your question or not. No, you did, I think, because what, what I heard you say was kind of like you felt you were almost like in a, in a place where you were, it was safe for you to kind of look around and, and explore and take chances. And that's so much, I think, what I read on Reddit from, from college students today is like asking questions like, you know, should I change my major to something that I'm more interested in? It's like, yeah, <laughs> um, why would you continue in, in something that you hate? And I think it gets back to this, you know, the sunk costs and, and biases like that. You know, you feel like you put so much in, but really, what are you learning if you continue in that? But um, all right, let's move along. Uh, so when we got together, uh, working together, um, we were, you were working on a research project looking at cognitive remediation, or we were just starting it, actually. You'd just mm -hmm. gotten the money. Um, what led you to cognitive remediation as an intervention that you think holds promise for college students with mental health issues? So I've talked a little bit about cognitive remediation in prior podcasts. So people kind of, I think, would have a, a, a general definition of like, you know, training your brain to improve in areas such as memory and focus and whatnot. But kind of where did you get that idea of like, this would be helpful for this population? Well, when I learned about um, support education. It, that's how we're refer, referring to it here. Mm -hmm. I don't actually find that to be a very helpful moniker because it means so many different things to so many different people. But when I say support education, when you say it, we're referring to um, what are the specialized educational interventions and mental health interventions that we can use to be able to support someone's entrance into school or their maintenance, like maintaining matriculation as a student, right? So... Um, and, <clears throat> and when we conducted one of our first studies in collaboration, um, with Temple, um, when we looked at some of the data initially, we asked students what were their greatest barriers in school. And the ones that were the most oftenly endorsed were not mental health, like classic mental health related sim like symptoms. They, they didn't talk about like um, managing their mental health. They talked about like, I have a hard time managing my time or prioritizing tests or studying for tests or like they talked about like real student stuff. And it was like my aha moment because when I was learning about support education, it was supposed to be like, how do you care or like, like figure out the mental health needs within the context of school? But then I realized, uh, no, it's not that actually. Well, there that is some of it. But you know, students who have depression or bipolar or you know psychosis or something, they may not drop out of school because of those things. They may leave school because they can't get their papers in on time or they never remember where their classes or like they forget Tuesday mornings. Like they have to like respond to like their threaded discussion. Right. So like it wasn't necessarily about the mental health symptoms, like the classic ones that we think about, but rather how do I be a good student when I have all these other things on my plate? And that was my like, oh, this is where the real skills like come in. How do we teach like young and even older adults like how do you set up your calendar so it's like your tool so you don't have to remember everything and how do you figure out like what comes first and what comes last and how do you figure out um what you say screw it to and what you like really prioritize you know so that was like my aha moment and then when i went to the literature there was nothing in it 
nothing about college students' mental health conditions struggling with these things. Like, there's nothing there. And so that's when I wrote the application for that grant, because it was pretty clear to me that if we didn't do something about those kind of like executive functioning skills, like the memory, like time management, prioritizing, if we didn't do things about that, we could talk about mental health like all we wanted to. But that still didn't get papers in on time. If you know how to deep breathe, that's not that's not what's going to get your paper in. It's like figuring out how do you do that over this course of two weeks so that it's actually done and you're not like scrambling at the end and making up bullshit excuses that like why you couldn't get the paper in on time. There is some benefit to being able to figure out when you use excuses or not, Mm -hmm. but like being able to like figure out how you can develop the skill set so you don't feel so shitty as a student was something that I was really interested in. So, and that's when you entered into scene, scene one. Yes. (laughs) Enter Derek. (laughs) And then fast forward four years and then all that shit is the shit I talk about now. That's right. (laughs) This is where this podcast was born. That's right. Um, so yeah, that's what I believe in now too, because I was trained as, as the cognitive specialist on that study. So what I did was when people entered into the study, they were um, randomly assigned to either get the cognitive remediation that we taught them out of a manual or not um, and be part of the control group. And uh, you know, it was those 40 students really that I spent uh, 12 weeks with each uh, teaching cognitive remediation that kind of the light went on for me like, ah, oh, this really is what people need. Yep. Um, and I think the, the ability to do this, you know, what follows is the ability to do things like manage your mental health better because now you have those base tools. Um, so- Absolutely. And you don't feel so ineffective. Like when you are ineffective as a student, you feel shitty you feel like I can't, I can't handle this, right? Like this is so hard. It's hard for everyone. It's not your mental health condition that makes it hard. Like it may make it harder in certain aspects, but everyone struggles with it. So if you feel more confident and competent in one area, then you can apply those skill sets to other things, right? So that's the difference with skills is once you figure it out in one place, you may have to tweak it a little bit or your approach or like, you know, mm-hmm. you may have to add another skill to it so that you can do it better. But essentially, once you got it, you got it. And then yeah. figuring out how to use it is another thing. Yep. Well said. All right. So I wonder if this was that sort of the answer to my next question, but maybe not, as I'm proud of these next two questions. <laughs> um, what's the one thing that you've learned in all your years of studying this population that you weren't expecting to learn? And how have you adapted as a result? Well, I didn't expect this like executive functioning thing, honestly. That was really an aha moment for me. That was like a critical tipping point. So as I told you before, I drank the Kool-Aid at BU. Like I was I was in it, I am BU in that kind of like psych rehab way. Mm-hmm. In that you help someone to identify like what they want to do, and then you help them to figure out how they're gonna do it. And then you figure out what are the skills that are really, really important to be successful at what you want to do. And then either they have the skill, they have some level of skill, or they need the skill. And so that's where my work, I think, is really focused, is what are the critical skills so that students who struggle in college, what do they need to do to be successful and to be satisfied. And I don't know if you've talked about these terms before, but success is how other people view you in your environment. You know, you you can come to my class and I make jokes and we have a good time and, you know, blah, blah, blah. 
and then you submit a paper and I rip it apart. So you could be completely happy, satisfied in my class because I'm funny. But then I could not think that you're terribly successful because you hand me dog crap as a paper, right? So like trying to figure out then how do you make someone, how do you, what are the skills that you need to be happy um, as a student? And what are the skills you need to be successful, right? Success and satisfaction. That's what we're going for. So that component, when we looked at that data and saw all those executive functioning skills, like bubbling to the top, I thought like, holy, holy moly, you know, there is a lack of definition in our field. Um, and especially in this like area of interest in support education and college students about how do you specifically intentionally and concretely help this population? It's just general kind of like nebulous things like, oh, you help them and you support them, which is fine. You need to do those things. You need to help. You need to support. But then you also have to do other things that are like really intentional. If you come to me and you have no calendar Um, we're setting up a calendar and you can kick and scream all you want, but we're going to have a good relationship and I'm going to tell you, and you're going to tell me all the reasons why you don't want it or you can't have it or, but over time we'll develop a system that works for you. It doesn't have to be a traditional calendar if that's not what they like. Right. But a way to track their time and a way to put down things so that it's in a standard way. Yeah. So I think that for me, when I d- were doing these things in practice, because I have helped to develop programs, I actually ran a program for a long time. I was a pr- I provided services for a long time. So then when I started doing research, I realized like, oh, shit, this just isn't my experience. Like developing skills is important. But now it helped me to better understand what are the actual skills that students want and need, because no one wants to feel like they're constantly on the gerbil wheel or behind behind the times or feel scrambled. Like when you think like, Oh, I know I have to do something. What is it? Or you show up for class and you miss the project and you're like, shit, you know, like no one wants to feel like that. You feel ineffectual. And when you feel ineffectual, it erodes your confidence. And when you're not confident and you don't have the skills then that kind of like starts this downward spiral. So by targeting those skills that allow you to be more successful is kind of that was my aha moment. And that has really helped me in developing programs. And especially with the first episode psychosis stuff that is like really hot in our field right now, which is great to be able to target college students very early on as they're experiencing symptoms has shown a really bright light on why support education or specialized educational interventions is how I refer to it now. How these specialized educational interventions are critical because you don't have a lot of time um, to be successful. And repeated attempts starts to wear on how you feel about yourself and how your parents feel about paying the bill or how financial aid feels about paying the bill. So whereas employment, you have a lot of goes at it, so to speak. With education, you can have a lot of goes at it, but no one wants to spend you know, 20 years on and off trying to get their associate's degree or their bachelor's degree. People, when they start, want to finish that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I'm thinking about the services on campus now. Yeah. And how, again, woefully inadequate they are. Yeah. And sometimes it's just like, well, we do have them, so that's good. But we definitely could stand to improve. What do you see the future of of on-campus disability services looking like for people specifically with mental health issues? Well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, disability services were created to help people 
coming back, you know, the GI Bill, right? They're coming back from war and they had like these physical conditions, war, you know, the effects of war. Mm-hmm. And um, they needed uh, to make changes on, on campus and have something in place for these students. And then, you know, as more and more people started to go to college, it was really physical disabilities. And then in the 80s and early 90s, the disability services were then educated on learning disabilities. So then they became like up to date on how to best serve that population. But the same thing has not happened with college students with mental health conditions. So, you know, schools have taken, you know, various approaches. And after the awful Virginia Tech incident, you know, a decade ago or so, I guess now, which is shocking, it's been that long. Yeah. There has been these reactions. One is, well, if you're at risk um, for hurting yourself or someone else, you get kicked off campus, which is definitely not the right way to go. And then there's this other approach of like no wrong door. Like if you need help, wherever you go to get help, will get you to the right place. Like no wrong door to get help. Um, But unfortunately, that's never made its way to disability services. So disability services doesn't actually know about how bipolar affects a student and how differently it can affect one student to another. Um, they don't understand the functional implications. And so what happens is they don't market directly to students with mental health needs. And we know that, you know, there's lots of students who are having adjustment issues, who have longstanding um, mental health conditions or are experiencing them for the first time. They don't know to go to disability services. They don't talk about it. And if you ask any student what's disability services for, they'll say like, oh, the kid in the wheelchair or the blind student. They never think about a student with depression or anxiety or very rarely. So the future, I think, of disability services would be really to educate um, just at like a very, like at the same level that they did for learning disabilities about what are the major mental health conditions that college students um, face and what are the ways that disability services can help support the academic function um, and performance on campus. So um, what we're doing for the executive functioning study and the cognitive remediation study can be used in disability services and counseling services and tutoring services. So being able to develop executive functioning skills among this group of students, but also among like the larger population, because we know that that's one of the skills or those are the skills that you start to develop at that time in your life because you have a lot of self-management. And in the absence of having self-management skills, <laughs> you kind of like figure it out as you go. So we can like help to expedite that learning process by teaching. Um, but also then like thinking what are the most uh, helpful accommodations and assistive technology. I mean, lots of the things that students struggle with now, they don't have need a letter of accommodation saying, oh, I need this for my professor. They need like a cool app, right? Or mm-hmm. like, it's so different now, but our disability services are not on the pulse. And for lots of reasons, one, they serve a lot of students. Two, our mental health campuses are not talking, I mean, our campuses are not talking about mental health. So students like feel like they're struggling alone. They feel so lonely, but there's so many people who feel the same way. So, I mean, I think that college campuses also have to do things different in talking about mental health more and not just have like mental health awareness week. That's not helpful. <laughs> you yeah. need to change the climate of your culture, yep. right? You need to like do things differently so students don't feel so alone. 
right? That there's like a lower risk of suicide. It's like, it's unfortunate that students um, feel so alone when they have so many people who struggle with the same thing. So disability services could do a lot more and really just educate, educating young students on, you know what, this app does a really good job with uh, flashcards, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this app does a really good job with integrating your notes. And this is, uh, so those are the types of things that young people now can sink their teeth into and like really be helpful to them. It doesn't have to be this long, laborious process, but really uh, educating their own community on like, how do you be a better student? And then some students may need some additional and more intensive things, but a lot of students just need a little help. Yeah. Do you think we'll ever get there with the no wrong door approach? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I sure do. And then some campuses are doing amazing jobs, right? Like, so if you look to the University of Minnesota, for instance, they did an environmental um, scan. It was an assessment to see what are the things that um, our campus is doing to be inclusive of students with mental health needs, right? So it's not even Mm -hmm. conditions, but because there's such a huge adjustment when someone gets to campus that... They feel lonely. They are lonely. Um, they're, they have a lot of responsibilities. It's a new place. So everyone feels kind of whacked, right? And so that's a very common experience. And there's some, like, adjustment things on campus. But some of that stays with a lot of students. And some, and some students kind of, like, adjust and move on and have a really successful um, experience. Um, But they did this environmental scan and they realized they could be doing so much more for mental health on campus and like really targeting stigma and advertising and talking, right? So like they started to have a campaign, a mental health awareness campaign, so that it was destigmatized on campus. And what they saw was this flood of students into disability services. And it wasn't because there were all new students coming, it's because they were on campus. And so... Usually um, on college campuses, ADD, ADHD um, are one of the largest um, groups that come to campus and often, I mean, come to disability services. And often it's because they've already had services in high school and they know what they need and they know how to get it. Um, But when they did this environmental awareness um, scan, they saw that the people with mental health conditions was like over and above the number of students with learning disabilities mm. and physical disabilities. It was like their number one group. Um, and it was, it grew like, it was like 300% in the first year following um, that assessment and like the campaigning, which just then goes to show you there are so many silent people who are struggling. And when we did our research, people say like, oh, these would be great accommodations to have, but I don't need it. Oh, you don't need it, but it would be great to have them. What's the difference? You know, <laughs> yeah. why don't you need it? Yeah. You think it would be great for you and really helpful because of your mental health condition, but you don't need it. And for some reason, like, students who have mental health conditions feel like they should struggle on their own. And I say like, well, if you saw a student who was blind in your class and you, and you gave them a book that was in Braille, do you think that they would say, oh, no, 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 I'll figure out how to use this book. No, they wouldn't. They'd take the effing book and be like, thanks so much. This is really helpful. So exactly. then why aren't students with mental health conditions saying like, oh my God, this is so helpful. Thanks so much. But instead they feel ashamed that they need accommodations, which is silly. Everyone needs flexibility and accommodations. And so our system isn't set up for everybody. It's set up in like this very like 1920s 1940s 50s way of like you learn a particular way you do it in a particular way but that's old and so people need to start thinking about it differently yep 
Very well said. And I think about it in the online learning. I was just, you know, thinking about this a lot. And I think one of the reasons that we don't see as many accommodations granted with online learning is because the internet in itself is sort of the ultimate playing field leveler. You know, it has the ability to provide accessibility to people and sort of meet their needs in a flexible way where, you know, this, like what you said, this archaic traditional classroom model is um, inadequate in a lot of ways to, to adapt. So, yeah. I think that's absolutely true. I also think that students get lost um, if they have organizational difficulties. Mm-hmm. Um, they get lost in online environments. So then it's like, how do you teach someone to navigate your environment if you have, you know, either learning disabilities or a mental health condition that ha- makes it hard for you to conceptually organize things? So I think that you're right that there is like this um, leveling leveling the playing field, so to speak, um, for online environments. But there's also another added level of complication if you cannot kind of like make your way through it. Yes, definitely. And that is what I'm working on, folks. So they know about my goal because I set a goal too in the beginning of the semester. So making progress, trying to bring that to you guys. Um, (laughs) So we concluded the cognitive remediation study uh, last year. Um, So I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what you are working on these days. Well, so we concluded the intervention and we're still collecting data and we'll be um, doing some data analysis. So while the intervention's over, the study has just finished and now we're starting to look towards the data to see what we've seen kind of like in the bigger picture. But one of the things that um, became a as I said earlier, that was really important to me um, when I started my internship as a student in grad school was how do you help people um, kind of make their way through school but also then find something that they're interested in doing and well-suited to do, both in interest and preferences and blah, blah, blah. And so um, as... I told you I have like a, ve- a very structured way of thinking about support education or st- strategic or specialized educational supports. Um, and so I wrote a grant to manualize um, that approach and how to integrate it with an existing supported employment. So for those of you folks who are listening who have no idea what the hell I'm talking about, there are these programs that help young people and older people with mental health conditions to find work that's meaningful to them. It's called supported employment. And um, for the last 20 to 30 years, that's what they do, is focus solely on employment and have not focused at all or very little on how to get someone to school and graduate from school so they can get the job that they want. So we have not done a very good job in that in our field um, in integrating um, the education and the employment together. So I wrote this grant um, to write a manual to integrate, um, really integrate, not like as an add-on, but really integrate um, how does a program like that that supports someone in work support someone in school because um, they often don't know how to do that. And differently from different from school and work is that in school, there are certain things that you need to do all the time. Um, you know, you have to choose classes every semester. You have to get them. You have to keep them. 
and hopefully you finish them. (laughs) (laughs) And hopefully you finish them or figure out like within the first two weeks, oh shit, this is not a good class for me. I got to go find another class stat. Right. Mm -hmm. So I did, I did a lot of that, um, when I was in undergrad. So, um, so I'm writing this manual and we had a really, a set, a series of very cool studies that led up to our research activities. We looked at the, um, literature to see what was helpful for young adults, um, what seemed to be effective in helping them to go to school and work. And then we did a survey of, um, programs that supported young people and how do they help people go young people go back to school and work and then um, we had a series of interviews with young people up to age 35 about their experiences in school and work so that we could write the best manual possible and then of all of our cool things that we did leading up to this part is we had something that we originally called a consensus conference but it was really a development meeting where we invited um 15, I think, young people who are uh, members of our PAC, our Participatory Action Council. But it's essentially 15 young people who come together every month and talk to us about um, things related to school and work and when you're young and the considerations. And we ask them questions, they ask us questions. But anyway, we brought them and some lead researchers and practitioners in our field together to kind of talk about what does an integrated approach to employment and education look like so that when you're going to college as a young person, you then can get the support to stay in school and then to get a really good job. And our system has historically not done those things very well. So uh, what we're currently working on is this intervention called HYPE, H-Y-P-E, which stands for Helping Youth on the Path to Employment. And this is a project that we're doing in collaboration with the UMass Medical School, the Transitions RTC, um, with Marianne Davis and Marsha Ellison. And so um, we're working really hard to to develop this intervention so that people can use it in support employment programs, as well as in first episode psychosis programs. So um, students, young people who are at risk for psychosis or who have the first experience of psychosis. Um, And then eventually we want to be able to roll it out to disability services, to guidance counseling, um, so that we want to be able to really um, keep young people on track and not be so disruptive with like the starts and stops in school, because that kind of a bumpy path is hard. Bumpy is fine. We can handle bumpy, but we just have to stay on the path as compared to like pulling off to the side of the road and saying like, this is too hard and I'm not going to do anything for a while. We don't want that. We don't want people to get stuck early in life. Um, so the idea is by manualizing this intervention, We're helping practitioners to kind of think through more carefully how do you get someone in school and then how do you keep them in school. Yeah, it's pretty amazing to me. I mean, it's great work and it's what amazes me, I guess, the most is like that this hasn't been done yet. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Like it's taken this long um, for, you know, the research money to get there and the right people to get into place to kind of make this happen. So I'll be so happy when, when everyone does have a manual to kind of you know, essentially guide and say, you know, these are some of the best practices that we found that, you know, help people with this or help people yeah. with that. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think that one of the drawbacks from, or one of the things that have kind of like, like, uh, delayed this progress is that studying education takes a long time and it takes a lot of money. And, um, that for research dollars to be prioritized to education, you really have to make it 
like a public health issue, like a moral issue. And for a long time, people thought like, well, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. And then Virginia Tech happened. And then they're like, oh, shit, maybe it's not fine. And that isn't even the type of person that we really help. I mean, unfortunately, that was an unfor- it was an awful, tragic event. But most of the students that we see who need help, like, silently struggle. They don't kill people. Like, that's, that's, those are not the students that we serve, you know? Like, the students that we talk about who have mental health conditions, like, s- silently struggle and they drop out. And then people tell them erroneously, go on social security, and then they're destined to a life of poverty and unemployment. And that's the worst thing to tell a young person is that you're too disabled to go to school and work because you're not. You just need the right supports. And so it is really behind the t- we're behind the times, but we're here now and we're going to make a really good impact on the process and services and hopefully in 20 years when we have this discussion again with people who are more hip and doing cooler things than we're doing Derek we'll be able to say like this is dope what you're doing and look at these outcomes and like we really changed the system like that is what we want to happen but now it's we need to kind of think through how we change the system so that it doesn't look the same for young people now as it does for like older people who are in the system. Certainly. So in 20 years, that'll be podcast episode like what, <laughs> 600. I'll have you back on. We'll talk about the state of the system and what's happened since, uh, you know, podcast, where are we on? 39, <laughs> um, 40. <laughs> All right. Great. So this has been such an amazing talk. I really appreciate uh, you coming on and giving us a few moments of your time, Michelle. Mm, My Um, pleasure. So I kind of have a couple more questions. So my my second to last question would Mm -hmm. be looking to you for what advice you might give to college students that have mental health issues out there that are listening to this podcast. You know, they're listening for a reason. You know, this podcast is about you know, coming on, you know, beginning of the semester, setting a goal together, you know, I set a goal too, and then kind of going through the semester and figuring out ways to kind of better get closer to achieving that goal. And I imagine people working on a wide variety of goals. So Mm -hmm. what do you think people need to know out there that might be struggling to achieve that goal? Because we're in week 10. So people have a sense at this point of where they're at, but even just in a larger scale with goal achievement in general. Well, you know me, I really believe in goals. And in an, if you don't have a goal, your action is then directionless, right? So I'm sure that you encourage your listeners to write their goals and to write their steps. And the absence of writing them then doesn't make them concrete. So I think, like, inspirationally, I would say don't give up. When shit's hard, don't give up. Any progress is progress, even if it's slow, even if it's slow don't give up. Um, but with that said, if things are not moving in a direction that you like, look at your goal and see, is that my goal? Is that what I want to do? Because if it's something that you want to do, you'll do it. And, but if you can't figure out how to do it, then it's time to think about like, okay, what are the baby steps to do it? So I'm going to use an example for myself. Um, at one point in my life, I was like, very overweight, really unhealthy. I just had a kid. I was smoking cigarettes and I was talking to my sister. I was writing, I was actually writing that manual grant, the hype grant. And it's like this ginormous thing. It's like a hundred pages, right? Um, and very little, very few people write documents that size because it's like 
who wants to? <laughs> well, frankly, because who wants to? <laughs> um, but I was I was on the phone with her and I was complaining. I was like, I just I don't have like any drive. I can't like do it. I'm like so unhappy. And she was like, What are you talking about? Like, well, what are you doing right now? You're writing this ginormous like grant. Like, of course you have drive. Like, that's not what it is. Like, what what is it? And I was like, I don't know. I'm like miserable. I'm like so. I was talking about how unhealthy I was. And she was like, Well, why don't we set a goal? Why don't we set a goal that you'll run a marathon and I'll um, pay for? We'll do it in an amazing place and I'll pay for the flight and I'll get us a great hotel and we'll like run a marathon in an amazing location. And I was like, Okay, I can do that. Okay. So let's just say that was my goal to run a marathon. If I didn't have any steps to get there, all I would do is to think about it. And then it would make me feel shittier and shittier that I wasn't doing it. So I set a mini goal of running a 5k because you have to start somewhere. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when I I was really very unhealthy. And so I downloaded the app of couch to 5k And that allowed me then even the smaller steps of how do I go from not running at all to running three miles, right? Mm -hmm. So if your goal isn't working for you, think through, like, is that my goal? It turned out that I was not actually interested in running a marathon. There's no way I want to run 26 miles. I don't even like driving 26 miles. Uh, My body is not going to run 26 (laughs) miles. So... I modified it. The goal changed. (laughs) My goal changed. That was not my goal. It was inspirational. And it made me think like, oh, shit, my sister's going to pay for vacation for me. Yes, I'll do that. that, (laughs) So that was my goal. But when I thought about like my health goal, right, like I didn't want to be this obese parent and have like an unhealthy lifestyle in front of my kid. Like it was like important for me to be a healthy mom and to set like a good example for my kid. Um, But then I realized I actually am not interested remotely in running a marathon. Maybe like the cool factor of having that stupid sticker on the back of your car that says 26.1, but that's it. That's all I wanted is the sticker. So I changed my goal and my goal was no longer to run a marathon. So if your goal isn't working, think about, is that your goal or is there something else about that that you really like? And then figure out what your goal is, but more importantly, figure out what the steps are so you can reward yourself, right? So thinking about progress, Being able to say, like, I've done this, 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 and this on my way to accomplish something are accomplishments in and of themselves. So in the absence of that, it's hard to be able to say, like, I've made progress when you don't know what you're doing, if it's directionless. So lots of the work that I do with practitioners is how how are you intentional with your services? And it's the same thing. How do you help someone identify what a really good goal is for them? What is their goal? Personally, what is their goal? And then how do you get there? So practitioners are really bad at this too because they're not taught how to think about goals and how to think about steps. And uh, if a step is too large, if it's not one thing, then break it down so that you can accomplish things slowly or quickly, but you can check it off. There's something amazingly powerful about like slashing something that's on your list, even a to-do list, right? But if you can slash something off like your goals and say like, I was able to do this, then that's amazing. When I ran my first 5k, I look like a wounded animal, but it didn't matter. I was able to run, run. That's in quote for the people who are listening. That's in quotation marks. Run (laughs) is would be considered running. But I was able to complete a 5K when I wasn't able to do it three months earlier. So, um, so I would say, like, don't give up. Reevaluate if it's your goal. And then being able to set very small, measurable things to be able to accomplish, and set time limits. If it doesn't have a time. 
it doesn't get done. So when someone's like, oh, just get it to me when you get it to me, if they ask me for something, I think you need to give me a date because in the absence of a date, I'm going to give it to you when I get to it, which is <laughs> never. Often never, <laughs> so, yeah. So put, put timelines on things so that you can kind of assess how it's going. Yeah. Um, and I'm guessing that's probably very similar to what you talked about, but really don't give up. It really is. Um, and you're, you're the perfect blend of like the inspirational along with like the practical and tactical, mm -hmm. like, cause sometimes just like, don't give up. But then if we don't give people tools on now not to give up, right. it's just, you know, it's kind of, and rings hollow. So right. I really appreciate you kind of like expanding on that to be like, this is how you not give up <laughs> That's right. um, is you sometimes need to reframe or re-break it down. I'll tell you this funny story cause you'll appreciate this. You know, just in my own experience with doing that, the first semester I ran this podcast, my goal that I set was to homeschool, uh, to get, uh, you know, figure out how to homeschool my son. And like three weeks in, I was like, wait a second, guys, I'm what? sorry. This was a little too big of a goal for this semester. Like, I need to dial it back a little. And my goal became like to get through the podcast. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know? So and sometimes I, like your larger goals are very important, but they're too ambitious at the time or it's not the right timing or it's too, right? It's too right. big. Right. It was on my mind when I like started <laughs> yes. it. And I was like, wait Same a second. like a good idea. Yeah. You know, and really what it is, is I need to do these other things first. Like I need to get, you know, establish my own brand and I need to kind of develop, you know, my own sort of entrepreneurial activities because that's going to put me in the position down the line to have the freedom to one day, you know, homeschool my son as I want to. So right. I just kind of, you know, it was definitely like getting too far ahead of myself. And I, I hope people kind of see that as like, you know, this happens to all of us. We're, you know, I don't want to call us experts, but we know a thing or two when it comes to setting goals and how to set a good goal. And even we F up sometimes. So. Absolutely. And I think that when you have this bigger goal, like of homeschooling, but then you come back with this goal of like, oh, I'm just going to get through the podcast. People may not necessarily realize that that is actually the smaller... So we talk about short-term and long-term goals, right? Mm -hmm. So the long-term goal, like there are a series of short-term goals that lead up to long-term goals. You can't just like jump to a long-term goal. It actually, it's called a long-term goal because it takes a long time. <laughs> but so there are these shorter-term goals that take three months, six months, a year before you can, and you have a series of those before you accomplish your long-term goal. And so like graduating with your bachelor's degree is four years. It's actually seven years for most people. Um, so you should think about like, well, what does my semester goal look like, right? Or like, what does my weekly goal look like? Or what, is, what does today look like? Sometimes you need to get really small to get through like the really hard times, but then always have that bigger map because if you don't have that bigger plan, you can kind of get stuck like aimlessly walking around and no one wants that. Yeah, for sure. All right. Thank you so much for coming on, Michelle. This has been an amazing interview. Um, how can people learn more about you? Uh, is there any way, any, are, you have a presence online? Or? I don't. I'm so lame. You know what? <laughs> I, I need someone to, if you're interested in helping me become a presence online, contact me. No, I'm just yes. kidding. Well, maybe not really. I maybe am not, not kidding. But, I don't know. Um, so I don't really have anything out there okay. and I'm not very good at like shameless self-promotion, but I heard that is something that you should do. Um, so Derek, if you're not doing it, you should do that. Um, <laughs> but, um, there is some, so you can contact me. My email address is Michelle with two L's dot Mullen, two L's E N, um, at Rutgers.edu. And, um, if I don't respond right away, don't be shy. 
um, sends another email saying like, Hey, (laughs) um, so that's probably the best way of getting in contact with me. I hope, um, maybe I should actually set some goals about doing a better job with like getting some information out there. So students and other people are aware of it, but lots of people make their way to me via like word of mouth or referral. And so I'm happy to talk to anyone and I really want to be able to make a difference. And so if I can help you, I will. Um, so I appreciate the time, Derek, this has been super fun and I'm very proud of you. Thanks. Thank you for, uh, you know, putting it out there. I'll make sure your email address gets in the show notes for today's episode. So if you guys, uh, you know, have any questions about what some of the things Michelle talked about are today and want to know more, um, she's an excellent resource. She knows more about this than just about anyone on the planet at this point. Uh, when it comes to, you know, the specialized supported educational supports out there that really do target, you know, people with mental health issues and really the what, the functional improvement. I think one of the biggest things I learned from doing our research study is, you know, we can do things to help people's memory, right? And that's why we did this cognitive battery to see, you know, did people's memories improve or did they intent- their attention improve? But really what we concerned, what concerns us in our department is functional outcomes like did your grades get better you know because that's the shit that matters and that's what's going to get you closer to your goals moving forward so um thank you again michelle really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast today no my pleasure and good luck all of you i'm so happy you're listening all right take care bye Okay, welcome back. Isn't that great? I I really hope you guys uh, got something out of that. There's probably a lot to unpack there, right? Um, We talked about a lot of topics and probably went fairly quickly, and and there might be a lot to unpack in some of the answers that Michelle gave. So I urge you, if you were confused but really intrigued by anything here, to send her an email. She included her email address uh, just now but I'm also going to include it in the show notes. Um, Or you could go back and listen to the interview again. Um, One thing that people like to do with podcasts in general is kind of manipulate, you know, the speed. Some people really like to listen to them fast so they can consume as many of them as possible, and other people like to slow them down so they really get the the grasp the topics well for more technical type of podcasts. So um, you might try and slow it down a little too if um, if it was confusing in any way or follow up with her with more questions but thank you so much michelle i'm really happy with um with the interview and and i hope you guys um i hope you guys enjoy it so that's it for this week uh your homework assignment is to now that we're as i said 10 weeks in which is two-thirds through the semester i'm encouraging you to stand up and take a thirty thousand foot view of your goal the progress you've made so far, and how much you have left to go, and if you need to make any changes in the direction you're headed, right? So let me share with you guys a little bit about my goal progress update. So as you guys know, my goal is to um, put together an online course. So I've been working on that since January. I took a week off in the beginning of January, I think before I even started up with the second semester, and I wrote a lot of the content. And then I worked on the... um, 
the keynote or the PowerPoint slides that kind of go around, along with the content. So I had to kind of break all the content that I wrote down into manageable chunks for people to learn, right? Exactly what I what I teach you guys. So I did that, and then I kind of hit the wall, and I talked about that um, over the course of February, which I was kind of uh, a little bit unproductive. And then March picked up, and I set a date, um, you know, kind of these artificial deadline before the the major deadline of like having the course ready to go of um, going and booking a hotel room and going and this past weekend I went into the Hilton Garden Inn and uh, just a local one near my house and I recorded 30 screencast videos over the course of uh, a day and a half so that was quite a um you know, it took a lot out of me, but I was, it actually went better than I expected. I thought it was going to take longer. And, uh, the feeling that I had when I was done was just phenomenal because this was something that was, you know, weighing on me. It was one of the major chunks of this large project, right? Because it was not something I could do in little pieces. I really had to batch this, meaning kind of do it all at once, wait for it to build up instead of instead of like oh the other approach is to kind of make it into a habit you know which is what I do with a lot of other things like I'll just do a little bit of time you know one screencast video a day but that doesn't work for this kind of task because I needed to have everything set up and I wanted every video to look exactly the same with background and the way the video is uh, camera is positioned and everything like that so it made sense to batch it and do it all at once and after thinking about it I ended up you know very happy with my decision to kind of lock myself away and eliminate as many distractions as I could and it really did like I was not tempted to be distracted like I thought maybe I'd be like oh maybe I should just you know take a break and go on reddit for a while and I really kind of put my head down and, and did it and I think part of it's because it's really something I'm passionate about you know I love this shit so I can talk about it all day for 10 hours on a Saturday to myself as I record screencasts. So that was a major, major chunk that I got done in the last week. So my next chunk is to watch them all and I have to get them edited. So I'm learning quickly when I, as I do this project, what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. And one thing that I, I'm not great at, nor do I really care to be, is something like video editing. So I could learn, and I, I basically know a lot of the actions to enough to edit all of my screen flow videos, but instead, um, I'm going to pay somebody to do it. So I'm going to outsource that work because I know that there's experts out there that can do it way better than I can, way faster than I can, and you know, it's worth my time, you know, and I'm, I'm to a point in my career when I can make those decisions. Not everybody has that um, that ability and, and is that fortunate, but I am, I, I have the support, um, you know, from my wife and I have some financial support to help me, you know, so it's something I can afford to do. Um, so that's another kind of tip is like to know what you're good at and what you're not good at and to kind of, when you can outsource what you're not good at, hard to kind of apply that to academia and, and succeeding in a course. But if you have a goal you know, in your life that's really not as driven by, you know, passing this class because you really, it's not ethical to outsource stuff when you're working for your grade. But if you, you know, if you're in some kind of entrepreneurial thing or if you are, you know, working on some kind of like health goal and you could afford to pay a professional to help you with some aspect of it, psh, shit, man, do it, right? Anyway, so 
That is my show for today. This is probably the longest episode we've ever done, but our, I know our interview went long, and it could have went a hell of a lot longer, to be honest. Um, but I really um, tried to keep it succinct, and I hope you guys uh, enjoyed it. Got another one, I think, coming for you next week, and I, um, I want to get through the interview, and then I'll tell you a little bit more about it, but I'm, I'm very excited for that one as well. So... Enjoy your week, rest of your week. Enjoy your weekend, guys. Stay focused, keep at that goal, and I will see you next week. Peace.